Well, good morning again. Happy New Year's Eve to all of you. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, end of the year always comes an opportunity for reflection, for thought, for consideration about the year that's passed and the one that's coming and, and how things went, if they went the way that we hoped that they would, maybe areas in our life where we look and we say, I'm really proud of myself. This year I grew in this way or areas in our lives where we look at ourselves and say, I, I need to get in shape there. I need to get in shape uh, emotionally or spiritually or physically or financially. And so we, we, we set goals in the new year that we often call New Year's resolutions. And, and by February, we've forgotten most of them. But we do try to get started off on the right foot to try to grow in the year to come. And as with individuals, so often with congregations, at the end of the year can be a time to reflect and to think and to pray about where the Lord has brought us and where he's going to take us in the future. And pastors who are called to shepherd God's flock, God's people in the present and into the future, often will try to communicate this uh, to congregations, to churches, through what we call uh, sort of a vision series. So the next three weeks, we're going to be preaching sort of what, what is our vision for the year to come. Now, I, I don't really like that language, but I don't necessarily have better language. So I want to clarify what I don't mean by that. I'm not a CEO standing up here and telling you about our benchmarks for 2024 and what our bottom line is going to be and how many people we want to have here and how many baptisms we want to see. I'm not really interested in talking about those things. Those are the outputs. Those are the outcomes. God is sovereign over those things, right? We're, we're called to be faithful and let God worry about the fruit. So what I'm talking about is, is what you might call sort of input things, things that, that largely we can do, that we can pursue, that we can chase after, that I believe that God will use to change us. And then we just sit back and see uh, what happens in, in God's plan. So vision for our church in the next year. We're, some of you don't know maybe that we're, we're still a very new church. We're about a year and a half old. We, we started in May of last year. And one of the questions that you get often when you start a new church or plant a church is, what is your vision for this church? And usually what people mean is, tell me how your church is going to be different than other churches. Why does the church marketplace need your church to contribute something? And I really want to say, we're just going to be pretty much like every other church. We're not really going to do anything that different than other churches. The, the real reason that we planted this church is because there's 60,000 people in East Nashville and less than a dozen healthy churches for those 60,000 people. So we just need more churches. But as the time has gone on, and I've thought about this and I've, I've prayed about this, I, I have gotten a sense of growing clarity in terms of what I think our context, our, our sort of community needs in a church in this day and in, in, in this moment. And there's two things that often come to mind. And the first is that, that we need biblical and theological and doctrinal sturdiness and stability and depth and clarity. And the reason is because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the mature church grows up into biblical and theological maturity so that it's not tossed about by the waves and the wind, so that it isn't just knocked over every time there's a stiff wind. And the last few years, I've never felt the, the sort of winds of uh, ideas and ideologies stronger than I have in the last few years. And I've never seen so many friends who I thought were walking closely with the Lord be toppled over by a stiff wind, as I have in the last few years. And so if we're not rooted in gospel doctrine, we're not going to be prepared when this happens. So we need, we need theological sturdiness. But there's lots of churches that are good at that. But as they create that sort of culture, they sort of incidentally also create a culture where there's a really high barrier of entry. 
And people walk in and they feel like, if I'm not a theologian, if I've not been to seminary, if I don't know all the answers, I don't belong here, I'm not welcome here, I can't fit in here. So I think the second thing that we need, not just because of that, but also because people are more lonely, more isolated, more anxious than they've ever been, I think we need a really warm and hospitable and loving and welcoming community. We need to be the kind of place where people can come in and feel like, I don't have to perform here. I can just exhale. I can breathe. I'm not worried about being judged. I can, I can be welcomed and loved here. And I, I want to say that a year and a half in, as I've reflected on these two things, thanks in large part to you all, I think that we're doing pretty well at both of these things. Like when, when people come here and experience our church and I ask them, what was it like? I often hear them articulate back to me some form of what I just described to you, which is really encouraging. And again, I'm not taking credit for that. That's because of you all, so thank you. I, now, I don't for a minute want to imply that, that we've gotten there and we can sort of take our foot off the gas because if we stop focusing on those things for a second, we'll lose them, right? So I'm not saying that we're moving past that to something else, but, but with that culture in place, as we continue to feed into it, what does this next year look like? What can we focus on? to grow to greater levels, not of size per se, but of, of spiritual maturity and depth. And so for the next three weeks, that's what I want us to think about together. And I'm only going to tell you the first one this morning because I want you to come back the next two weeks. But the first one is what I'm calling focused worship. Again, I'm just really bad at titles because like with vision series, I don't really like that, that title either, but I couldn't really think of something else. What I mean when I say focused worship is not that you're concentrating when you're singing at church. Uh, although that's just fine. What I mean is that, that we would have hearts and minds this year that are focused on God, that, that we would try to get past all the clutter and all the, the other busyness, and that we would look at Christ, and we would, we would do what ancient Christians called contemplate. We would just contemplate God. We would think about him, and we would focus our hearts and minds on him. What we need, I believe, in 2024 and every year more than anything else is a vision of God to see him, to, to behold him, and in beholding him to be changed. So this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to turn there with me because we're going to reference back to this passage uh, throughout the sermon, but typically I'll ask you to turn with me to the scripture and, and sort of read along with me as I read aloud. I want to do something different this morning. I promise you that I'm really going to read what's here. I'm not going to make it up, so you can, you can check me right after I'm done reading. But because of the nature of this text, I want to invite you as I'm reading to close your eyes, and I want you to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes as I read. I want you to imagine that you're actually there witnessing what he's witnessing, and just be sensitive and aware to what that experience is like. So Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, 
the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Whom will I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder what that was like for you. I wonder what impression this passage made and what you felt. I, I hope that hearing and picturing yourself in the midst of Isaiah's vision for God, among other things, first and foremost, I hope it humbled you. I hope you felt small. This morning, as we, we think about focused worship, vision of God, contemplation of God, I want us to see three things that Isaiah experienced. And the first is that he's humbled by this encounter. Second, he's purified. And third, he's sent. But first, who is Isaiah? We're just parachuting in to a book of the Bible that we've not been working through, so we need at least a couple minutes of context. So who is Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet. Now, that immediately raises another question. What is a prophet? Often we hear that word, and we think of people who predict the future, right? Fortune tellers. That's not really what prophets were. Their ministry did include, at times, telling things that would happen in the future. But these were men who were raised up by God, to speak God's words on God's behalf, to go to God's people as sort of covenant lawyers and tell God's people, here's where you're breaking your covenant stipulations. Here's where you've turned away from faithfulness to God. God is telling you, come back. Come back in these different ways. And if you do come back, this is what will happen. But if you don't come back, that is what will happen. And so Isaiah did this uh, around 700 years before the birth of Christ. And the book of Isaiah is the sort of collection of his prophetic ministry over the course of 60 years, during which time he called God's people back to faithfulness uh, and warned them of what would happen if they continued to be unfaithful. Namely, they would go into exile. Ray Ortland, uh, in his study notes on the book of Isaiah, says the central theme of the book is God himself. Isaiah defines everything else by its relation to God, whether it is rightly adjusted to him as the glorious central figure in all of reality. And this starts with Isaiah himself. In this passage, which is his calling to prophetic ministry, it starts with Isaiah being rightly related to God. So that's what we're going to consider today. So first, Isaiah's vision of God humbles him. We've all had experiences in life that make us feel small. Uh, sometimes it's just being around a really big person. When I, I worked in book publishing before I was a pastor, and I had an author who was about six foot seven, 300 pounds of pure muscle, and every time I saw him, he insisted on hugging me. And I'm not a, really a small person. I'm kind of a, a tall, you know, and this guy would, every time, he, it was almost humiliating. He would wrap me up in this big bear hug, and I would feel like a little child every time he did it. Uh, beyond that, of course, there are experiences in nature, Right? When you, when you walk up to the shoreline in the ocean and you look out and you, you just see endless ocean, like you can't see anything beyond it, I, that makes me feel so small. Or looking up, you know, getting away from the city like Nashville and looking up into the sky on a starry night and you realize there are bajillions of stars up there that are bajillions of miles away and I'm not just a speck on this earth, but this earth is a speck in the universe. Like, it, it makes us feel tiny. And Isaiah's vision of God's greatness made him feel small. In particular, 
There's four attributes of God that are seen here that I think we can sum up in the idea of God's greatness. First is his authority. How does Isaiah see God? He sees him seated on a high and lofty throne. What is authority? There's two, two kinds of authority. One is positional authority. We're like, I'm in a position of authority over somebody else, right? I'm a boss, or I'm a manager, or I'm a principal, or I'm a police officer. But there's, there's another kind of authority that's actually much stronger. It's what you might just call like actual authority. Uh, it's people who, just by virtue of who they are, can, can effect change, right? When they speak, when they act, things happen. Uh, so give you an example. There are people online, on social media, who build up these platforms for themselves, and they have lots of followers, right? But if their, if their account disappeared tomorrow, nobody would ever realize it was gone. On the other hand, if Taylor Swift deleted all of her social media and went dark for like a month, and then a month from now started an Instagram account, she would have two million followers by lunchtime, right? Uh, that she, speaking of Taylor Swift, like her whole tour that she just went on, like, Economists say actually change the economy, right? That's authority, even if she's not anybody's boss, per se. Now, we like to think, and it's true, that in a sense we live in an anti-authoritarian age, but really we're just opposed to positional authority. Right? We rage against people in positions of authority, but we're constantly submitting ourselves to people who have influence in our lives. And when we look at God in Isaiah and in the rest of the Bible, what we see is the pinnacle of both kinds of authority. Right? He has positional authority. God, uh, Isaiah sees him seated on a throne. He's a king. There, there's no symbol of authority greater than, than a throne. But he also has actual authority. He can, he can make anything that he wants to happen happen just by speaking. In creation, he speaks. He just, he just opens his mouth, and things that don't even exist yet spring into existence in obedience to his command. That is pure power and authority. No one and nothing can thwart his will, and what he wants to do, he will do. Look and see the great honor that is due to God, one church father said. See the authority that he has over all creation. God is high and lifted up on a throne, crowned with splendor, and the reign of God transcends all things. First, Isaiah sees his authority. Second, he sees his majesty. He is majestic. Of course, this word is related to authority. right? We say his majesty, her majesty, when we're talking about royalty. But when you boil it down, to be majestic is to be imposing. It's to be so great and so wonderful and so beautiful that your mere presence imposes on the people around you. Where does Isaiah see this? He says that the hem of God's robe filled the temple. He's, he's saying God is huge. <laughs> like just the smallest little corner of his, of his clothing fills up the entire temple. His presence is utterly imposing and majestic. Third, Isaiah sees God's holiness. This is perhaps the chief attribute of God that we should take from Isaiah 6. Now, when Isaiah wrote, uh, he would not have used punctuation. He wrote in a time and in a language where there were not periods and exclamation points and question marks. So the way that you communicated things like that was by using uh, different styles of writing, among others, repetition. If you wanted to really emphasize a point, you would repeat it. And the way to, to really hammer it home is to repeat it three times. Right, A threefold repetition is basically to say the fullness of this thing that I'm repeating. And so when we get to God and he says that God is holy, 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 he's saying he's, he's infinitely holy. His holiness cannot be measured. It's the fullness of holiness. 
Now, what is holiness? It's a word with a bad rap, right? We picture old ladies with frowns on their faces when we think of holiness, but that's not what holiness is. It's two things. One, it means to be set apart. It means to be distinct from. It means to be other than. Not because you set yourself off to look down on people because you think you're better than them, but because by your very nature, by your very essence, you are different than other things. Now, there's lots of differences, distinctions in our world, but the, the, the single most significant distinction is the one between the creator and everything else. Before anything else existed, God created, and the, or God existed, and then he created, he creates everything else. So the, the biggest difference in the world is not between us and other galaxies, it's not between men and women, it's not between plants and humans, it's between God and everything else. He is totally and completely other than us. But second, to be holy means to be perfectly righteous and pure and unmixed with any sin or evil or imperfection of any kind. Isaiah sees God and he knows this one is utterly different than me. And he is utterly perfect and holy and righteous. The fourth attribute of God that Isaiah sees is his glory. His glory fills the whole earth. The Hebrew word for glory literally means heaviness or burden. It's like this, this weighted blanket of beauty and perfection that lands on everybody who sees it. And notice, by the way, who is singing about the holiness and glory of God? Who is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory? It's angels with six wings that are covering their faces all the time because they can't even look directly at God. These beings that if we saw them, we would worship them are hiding their faces from God because he is so perfect. If unfallen angels hide their faces from God because he is too great and glorious to gaze upon directly, with how much more reverence and awe should we approach God? Isaiah realizes this, and it totally undoes him. Woe is me, he says, for I am ruined. He realizes this is an authority that I must submit to. I am infinitely small before this infinite majesty. I recognize my sin before this perfect holiness, and I am nothing before this burdensome glory. Now, before you start thinking, this is just an Old Testament thing. This is how God was in the Old Testament. But in Jesus, he's much more easily approachable. Peter, the apostle, and the other disciples have the exact same experience in the Gospels with Jesus. There's a story where Peter and some other uh, guys are out fishing one day. That's what they did for a living. This isn't just a hobby. And they didn't catch anything the whole day. And Jesus gets in the boat with them and he says, hey, put your nets out over there. And Peter says, you know, I, I actually think we should read a little bit of sarcasm into his response. He says, okay, Lord, like, we're the fishermen, we know what we're doing, and we've been fishing all day long, and we haven't found anything, but if you say so, Lord, sure, we'll try that spot over there. And they throw their nets in, and of course, it's a, it's a catch so huge that they can't haul it in without the nets tearing. And what is Peter's response? He doesn't say, we're going to get rich. He doesn't say, look at all this fish. He falls on his face, and he says, depart from me. Get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. He realizes who it is that he's dealing with, and he has the exact same response that Isaiah has. I wonder, when was the last time that you were humbled and undone before God? The last time that your worship of God remotely resembled the experience of Isaiah or of Peter? 
the last time that you saw his authority and majesty and holiness and glory so clearly that you simply shut your mouth and that your forehead was on the ground and you just worshiped and just thought about God and just pictured him and, and sat there silently before him, might I suggest that if we've never had this kind of experience of God, that it might be because we view him as an object who can conveniently give us some things that we need, but we don't actually view him as beautiful and glorious and worth worshiping just in and of himself, apart from anything that he can or might do for us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, in which he talks about uh, four different kinds of love. And uh, there's a helpful distinction that he makes between two kinds of love, helpful to me here. One he calls need love, and the other he calls appreciation love. Need love is like a, a nursing baby who is hungry and loves his mother because she can feed him. And he says, often we come to God with need love. And that's good. That's fine because we do need things from him, right? Like we, we don't have what we need in and of ourselves. So it's good to come to God with need love. But there's a higher love, a better love. And it's what he calls appreciation love. It's when we can look at a thing, look at an object without benefiting from it in any way and just saying, that is beautiful. It is good that that exists. That is wonderful. It just is, right? Like I'm irrelevant, Regardless of anything that I can get, that thing is wonderful. That is what Isaiah first and foremost experiences here. God is not just a buddy who helps us when we feel lonely or a cosmic butler who helps us feel happy and healthy and wealthy. He's God in and of himself, apart from us. This vision of who God is, first and foremost, I hope, humbles us. It puts Isaiah's face in the dirt, but God, in his grace and compassion and love, does not make him stay there. Second point is that Isaiah is purified. Now, it's funny. We might come to this story and think that the solution to being humbled in this way is a boost of self-esteem. We think of the, the person who misses the game-winning shot and his teammates picking him up and saying, hey, it's no big deal. You tried your best. Good try. Come on, shake it off. We'll get him next time. The person who fails the test, the person who gets dumped, right? It's like, hey, you know, it, it's okay. There's more fish in the sea. It's going to be fine. That sort of approach. And by the way, that, that's what, if, if somebody were to have the spiritual experience that Isaiah had and come to us and talk to us about him, we were to counsel them, that's probably what we would say to them, right? Hey, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. God doesn't want you to stay down there in the dust. Like, you're, you're not that bad. God doesn't want you to have a low view of yourself. Come on, he loves you. Pick yourself back up, right? That is emphatically not what God does in this passage. Because the solution to being brought as low as Isaiah was is not to be lifted back up with false assurances, but it is to be purified. Because at the heart of Isaiah's humiliation was not just God's greatness, right? It was that. But it wasn't just God's greatness because what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, I'm undone. Why? Yes, because I've seen the king, but also because I'm a man of unclean lips. That just means because I'm a sinner and because I live amidst sinful people. The reason that Isaiah is so undone is because this is what happens when God's holiness meets sinful humanity. It's what happens when we see God rightly and we see ourselves rightly. So what we need most is not, not to be picked back up with a boost of self-esteem. It's to be purified. And the good news is that God is exactly the kind of God who wants to do this. You know, most authority figures don't get down in the dirt with people, right? They want to they like be off on their, on their own. Um, 
I don't, I'm just thinking of this. I don't typically mention Taylor Swift multiple times in the same sermon, but when she goes to these Chiefs games, she's not like sitting in section 204 getting beer spilled on her by some random guy, right? She's up in the, in the box with, with the quarterback's wife, right? Uh, there's another, there's a funny to me viral video that, that, um, that was released a couple years ago of the Pope, and I don't mean this with any respect, disrespect to the Pope. I would do the same thing. But it, there's, there's people who are coming to meet him and pay their respects to him, and you know, they like, can take his hand and kiss his ring. But in this video, he lets people take his hand, but every time they start to bend forward, he like jerks it back so they don't kiss his hand, which again, I understand. I, I wouldn't want their germs on my hands either, but it's like, I'll come part of the way down to you, but I'm not gonna come all the way down, right? I don't actually want your germs on my hands. But, but what is God like? Later in Isaiah, listen to what God says about himself in chapter 57. He says, The high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and the lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the oppressed. Isaiah 66, 1, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of home could you build for me? But... I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, one who is submissive in spirit, one who trembles at my word. Notice the uniqueness of God. He is transcendent. He is high. He is lofty. He is glorious. And yet he is willing and able and ready to come near. And he has come near. As we've seen in this Christmas season, he's come so near as to be born and laid in a manger. The high and lofty God condescends to us in the, in the beautiful and proper meaning of that word. God is ready and willing to pick Isaiah and us up from the dust. How does he do it? Look back with me at verses 6 through 7. It says, One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, the priests were responsible for, for the fire on the altar where, where burnt offerings would be made. And they were responsible to keep the fire going 24-7, right? The coals, they had to always stoke the coals to make sure that there was always fire there ready for a sacrifice. And so the picture here is a sacrificial picture. The angel is taking a coal from, from the altar where burnt offerings would be made and cleansing Isaiah by it. He's saying, it's God's not just overlooking your sin, right? He doesn't say, hey, you're wrong about your sin. He's not, he's not saying, don't worry about it. He's saying the solution here is for a sacrifice to be made for you so that you can be purified and cleansed. This is a, this, the touching of the coal to the lips is a sacramental gesture of God applying the sacrifice to Isaiah. And we come to the New Testament, we come to Hebrews, and we read that Jesus is the great high priest who's always stoking the coals on, on the altar, but what is the sacrifice that he offered? It's not animals, it's not food, it's himself. He offered a once for all time sacrifice that is always burning, that is always ready and able and willing to purify anybody who comes to God through Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to us and he touches our lips with the burning coal of Christ's cross and he says, you are forgiven. You're purified. Your sins have been atoned for. Can we feel the relief of being picked up off the dirt? We can't unless we've first been there. 
right? And in our day, in our, in our moment, we, the, the worst thing we think that could happen to people is that they might have some negative thoughts about themselves. And so we're so quick to, to rush them through the process of becoming aware of their sin and their brokenness. And what they need is to feel that. What we need is to feel that and then to be picked back up from the dirt. The whole man, Calvin said, the whole man, the whole person must be reduced to nothing so that then he may be renewed according to God's wishes. And then what? Then, point three, Isaiah is sent. Isaiah is humbled, he is purified, and he's sent. Remember, this is Isaiah's call to ministry. So after he has this encounter with God, God asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, through the purification of the burning coal, finds his voice. And he says, joyfully and quickly, quickly, here I am, send me. We've, we've all had experiences in life that we just can't stop talking about, right? You went to a game, you went to a concert, you, your wedding, whatever it is, like for months afterwards, you just want to keep talking about it over and over and over again. And this is what happens to Isaiah. He has this vision of God and he says, okay, God, I'm ready. Send me to go tell people about you. Isaiah is commissioned to speak the word of God, to preach the gospel, to point people to God's holiness and their sinfulness and God's love for them in spite of it, and to point people to the Savior who's going to come and cleanse them of their sins and bring God's kingdom to earth. Now, in the Old Testament, this prophetic ministry was unique. It was only given to a few people who were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. But in the New Covenant, where all believers have the Spirit of God, here I am, send me, becomes the natural and immediate and universal response of the person who has had a transforming encounter with God. We see God it humbles us. He purifies us by his grace through faith. And we get up and we say, okay, I'm ready. Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to tell about this gospel? Now, what do we do with this? Uh, how does Isaiah's story of being humbled and purified and sent become our story? First, we should just pause and ask, have you had this kind of vision of God? I don't mean the literal vision like Isaiah had, but have you seen God for who he is, like for the, for the first time? Do you know him? Have you been humbled? Have you been made aware of your sin, the fact that you're a person of unclean lips? Have you been undone and ruined before God and, and hidden your face from him only to hear him say, hey, be, be cleansed. I offered a sacrifice for you. I sent my son to be the sacrifice for your sins. Believe in him and be cleansed. All of us, friends, Every single one of us one day is going to stand before God in his glory and in his holiness and in his splendor. And we will either stand before him as people who have been cleansed by faith in the cross of Christ or people who haven't been. And I want to encourage you, if you're wrestling with these things, to keep wrestling and, and talk to somebody. Like if, if, you've, if you've been here often, you know that uh, after the service, I'm pretty quick to start cleaning up and getting ready for the next church to come in. But I just want you to know that if you're wrestling with what it means to be a Christian, there's nothing I'd love more this morning than to be late getting out of this room because I was talking to somebody about what faith in Christ means. So please grab me or grab somebody. Keep wrestling and keep thinking and praying about this. And Christians, saints, are you going back to the well? Are you going back to the vision of God? Are you still seeking him? It is, what, what we need most 
is renewal. And it is in seeing this vision of the glory of God that we will be renewed. We'll be renewed first and foremost for worship. Again, this is, this is our hope this year, that we would be people who worship God. I'm reminded uh, in this passage of the story of the transfiguration in the Gospels. When Jesus takes a few of his followers up on this mountain and he's transformed before them into this glorious picture of himself as he will be when he returns. And they see this, it's amazing. He's robed in, you know, this blinding light clothing and all the just amazing picture. And they should be undone like Isaiah is. And instead, Peter, who in the other story, Peter says the right thing. In this story, he says the wrong thing, but he always says the first thing. Uh, he looks at Jesus the way that he is and he says, it's really good that we're here. Let us do something for you. <laughs> How can we serve you? It's, it's really good. You're really fortunate to have us here for this moment. And this booming voice comes from the heavens and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter, it's not the time for you to talk. Close your mouth and listen. Are we like Peter, being offered a vision of Christ in his glory and rushing to open our mouths and tell Jesus all the things that we can do for him? Or to tell him all the things that he should be doing for us? My invitation to you this morning is that we would spend this year instead listening to the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. How can we do this this year? Here's a start. Read the Bible and pray and come to church, which are the most boring, uh, maybe even legalistic sounding things that I can say. But read the Bible, pray, and come to church and meditate on God and do so Read the Bible distraction-free. Find a place in your home and put your phone away. And for five or 10 or 15 minutes, just read the gospel and think, what does this tell me about God? Read the Bible and think, what is this revealing to me about God? And meditate on him. How about just start with, start with a psalm and a chapter from a gospel every day. That'll take you 10 minutes. And read it quietly and meditate on what it's telling you about God. And then what if we... Now, again, these spiritual disciplines, they are not the end. They are not the goal. They are the means to the end. If they were the goal, that would be legalism. But they are the means to get to more of God. They are his divinely appointed means to get to more of him. So this week, let's do this. And let's, this is going to sound so practical. Let's start a streak. And next Sunday, let's come back to church and say, I've read my Bible for seven days in a row. And if on Thursday your kids are going crazy and work is terrible and you get home and you can't do it, then on Friday morning, start over and come to church with a two-day streak. And that would be wonderful. Right? Let's, let's just commit to reading the Bible and praying and see what happens. And then let's come back, not just next Sunday, but each Sunday. Second encouragement in this way for this year. If something doesn't take you out of town or keep you home sick, come to church. It doesn't have to be this one. But, but let's be at church this year. I have a friend who is a pastor in a college town, and he often uh, posts on social media on Saturday nights, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And I appreciate that. And I want to say church for the rest of this year is a December 31st decision. Let's just commit to being at church, not because it earns us heaven points, not because God will be more proud of us, but because this is where the magic happens, right? This is where the total is greater than the sum of its parts because Christ is present with us in the power of his spirit. 
The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to work through the church in the word and prayer to give us a vision of the glory of Christ, which 2 Corinthians says, as we behold it, will transform us into the same image more and more and more. That's renewal, and that's what we're after this year. Last thing, we're renewed not only for worship, but for mission. As we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ, we won't be able to keep our mouths shut. As this happens, we will want to tell people about the change that's happening in our life. So we will say, like Isaiah, here I am, send me. So as you go home today, I want to give you one more encouragement. I want you to think of two people. It can be more than that. But think of two people that God has brought into your life. A family member, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a fellow student who do not know the love of Christ in their lives and commit to praying for them this year. Commit to praying that God would draw them to himself and commit to having some sort of conversation with them this year about Christ and about the the state of their souls and their spiritual lives. These are the inputs. These are the things that we can control. We can read our Bibles. We can pray. We can come to church. We can tell people about Jesus. And then we're just going to let God be responsible for the rest. We can do these things and then just see what happens.